Hey, it's Cameron here. Are you intrigued by how technology like artificial intelligence and cloud computing are affecting geopolitics? Do you care about how governments are using these tools? If so, then I'd recommend checking out Microsoft's Public Sector Future podcast. Head over to aka.ms slash public sector future to find all the episodes or just search for public sector future wherever you get your podcasts. Hi, and welcome to Ones and Twos, FP's economics podcast. Every week we take a couple of data points. We use them to try to explain the world. I'm Cameron Abadi, FP's deputy editor with you in Berlin, Germany. As always, Adam Twos, FP's economics columnist, Columbia University professor, is with us this time back in New York. Hi, Adam. Hi, Cam. So uh, just a reminder, first thing, we will be doing a live show in New York City on October 25th. I've mentioned this before, but... It's just a bit over two weeks from now, and tickets are going very fast. So if you're considering coming, you might want to move pretty quickly on getting the tickets. You can find a link in our show notes. So uh, check it out. It'll be a good time. So we're doing something a little different today. Just one data point, just one topic, in fact. We thought it was so important that we devote the entire show to it this week. The data point there is 150 billion. That is the number of cubic meters of gas that Russia will not be delivering to Europe this year. Winter is coming and it has left Europe horror-struck. This winter won't be like any other for the continent. It will be a cold and dark one as Europe battles an energy crisis. So Europe has been scrambling to replace that shortfall and to contain the fallout from the really high prices they're paying as a result. Offices are getting chillier. Historic buildings are going dark. Bakers can't afford to heat up their ovens. And people are stocking up on firewood. With high costs and tight supply... Gas prices right now in Europe are about eight times the average of the past 10 years, and about eight times also as expensive as prices in the United States. So this is a generational energy crisis underway here in Europe. That's the way everyone's referring to it. And we are heading into winter, into the thick of that crisis. Governments are appealing to the public to reduce gas usage, while also trying to introduce various ways of ensuring that consumers and businesses can afford to pay their gas and electricity bills at all. They're preparing even for scenarios ranging from periodic blackouts to cascades of industrial bankruptcies. Yes. So again, a very big energy crisis we're in the thick of, and we're going to try to make sense of it. So Adam... We're talking about this as an acute energy crisis right now as winter approaches. But my understanding is that next winter is slated to be even worse. So when the gas storage facilities have been depleted over this winter and there aren't enough supplies to fill them with again next summer, it's going to even be a bigger issue next winter. So how long is Europe's energy crisis likely to last here? I think the short answer is we don't know, um, but it's it would be it would be foolish to assume that it will be short and that it will be over next year. I mean, barring something unforeseen like a Russian collapse or some you know extraordinary deal with OPEC or something, um, there's really no reason to think, for precisely the reasons that you spelled out, that um, the situation is not going to get progressively more difficult. 
Um, because as you say, the crucial thing is that this year, um, because Europe was slow to move aggressively against Russia, they were able to fill up the gas storage tanks and, and the new supplies being cut off. I mean, if Europe were to experience a severe winter this year, um, and there is some meteorological evidence suggesting that we might be headed into that, it's quite likely that there will be major shortages already this winter. Um, but certainly next year, it's it, all bets are off, really. It's not obvious where the replenishment of the stocks will, will come from um, next year. And uh, really, I think that's the longer term horizon here is the appropriate one. I think over a time horizon of two to three to four years, some of the investment in floating LNG terminals, um, and major economies, and we'll begin to really feed through and make the balance easier to strike. So I think, you know, there's a sense that this year is nerve-wracking. Next year is looks as though it's going to be the toughest period, and then beyond that, the situation eases again. But we're in completely. This is terra incognita. No one's had to navigate this before. Hmm. It is remarkable that we have to study the weather and meteorology as a, a geopolitical factor here. That that itself is a kind of new territory, <laughs> sort of trying to divine what the weather will be. And it's the random bit, right? It's not necessarily the you know, complex models of long-term structural climate change. Could it, mm. it could just be a freak cold winter for whatever reason, and that would, that would do the damage. Mm. Um, but you're absolutely right. Yes, it's, it's kind of agricultural, isn't it? Like we're back in some, mm. like the early modern period where the, where the great snap, you know, the freezing temperatures of the late 1600s and early 1700s delivered disaster for Europe. Mm. To echo a listener question, it was from someone who preferred to remain anonymous. He pointed out that you'd predicted in one of our podcasts at the beginning of the Ukrainian war that it was probably only a matter of time until Nord Stream 2, the gas pipeline between Russia and Germany, before that was back in use. You know, you described it as too great a financial investment to simply abandon on either side. And now the pipeline has been the object of sabotage, with plenty of people believing that Russia was the likely culprit you know, given Putin's increasingly open animosity towards the West. So do you think the West is now, in fact, at a moment of kind of near permanent decoupling from Russia? And if so, do you think that's sunk in yet across Germany and elsewhere in Europe? And I guess more generally, does this represent in some ways more stark decoupling than even during the Cold War when Russia was still a reliable supplier of energy for Europe? Yeah, I was I was wrong about Nord Stream two. Um, not the only thing I've been wrong about this year, but but I was wrong about Nord Stream two. I mean, I got the inertia on the German side right, and on the European side right. I mean, Europe, you know, it's taken forever. Hmm. I mean, it never Europe. It wasn't Europe after all that turned the gas tap off, right? Any more than they have actually yet turned the petrol, the oil tap off. Um, we are still, Europe is still consuming Russian gas by way of uh, notably a pipeline, which unbelievably runs through Ukraine. Um, mm. So at that level, you know, to gamble on inertia is was not an unreasonable thing to do. Uh, what I totally underestimated um, was the, just the reckless violence and self-harming tendencies of, of Putin's regime, right? And that's that's what I didn't get right. So kind of very much against their will, I think it, it is pretty much clear now and a done deal, I think, that, I mean, no, you know, I'm wrong about it one time, likely to be wrong about it a second time around. But I do, it seems very difficult to, to understand and conceive of how Europe would ever turn these pipelines back on again. I mean, the sabotage affects Nord Stream 1 as well as Nord Stream 2. Um, but I really think we are looking at a kind of permanent uncoupling. In fact, as far as Germany is concerned, it's already happened, right? So September 
this last couple of weeks, September this year, was the first month since the 1970s that Germany has effectively done without new Russian gas supplies. So supplies have ended to Germany from Russia. For the European economy as a whole, um, because of the layout of pipelines and so on, um, the share of Russian imports in total imports um, of gas have has fallen from 41 to 9% in the course of a single year. So this is, you know, de facto an event that's happened to re-emphasize, not really driven by Europe's own strategy, mm. but by decisions made on the Russian side, provoked by the sanctions which Europe has imposed and the position it's taken in the war and not backed away from. I mean, if, if Europe had been truly craven, Orban style, they could after all have surrendered in their backing for Ukraine, for instance, and and then no doubt the gas, well, at least might have stayed on. They didn't choose to do that, but nor did they directly sanction the, the gas supplies as such. Uh, I do think as a result, yes, we're in a, a new phase of Western European relations, indeed Eastern and Central European relations with Russia. Um, to think of it as a kind of resumption of the Cold War, you know, it's maybe, maybe useful. Certainly that the atmosphere is far more dangerous, I think, and uh, polarised than during the détente period of the 1970s and 80s, or at least the 1970s. I mean, the 1980s were already a, another relatively hot phase in the Cold War. The 1970s, certainly, the period of détente was more relaxed than the current moment that we're in. If you go back to the beginning of the Cold War, I think, you know, in the 1950s, there wasn't, there wasn't a lot of trade going on. And, you know, Germany was, West Germany, as was, was in an extremely hardline position vis-a-vis vis-a-vis the Soviet Union. I mean, if one was to be facetious, you know, a return to the Cold War era would in fact solve Europe's problems, um, uh, specifically with regard to temperature regulation. Um, If Europe wants to very substantially reduce its import deficit of gas, all it really needs to do is turn the thermostats down from an average of 22 degrees centigrade to 19 degrees centigrade, which would hugely slice and cut back on its uh, import dependence. And those were the kind of numbers of some historical studies have shown that in the early 1980s, uh, households in the UK were heated to only 16 degrees centigrade. And I vividly remember shivering and, you know, wearing a pullover inside in that period in drafty English houses. Um, so this idea of, you know, um, domestic retrenchment as part of a you know confrontation with Russia, you know, it, it makes for... It makes for the stuff of dark comedy, but um, it would actually move Europe a very considerable way towards solving its issues. If it could then also introduce a variety of other economies to about the tune of 5%, it would get most of the way there in coming um, uh, one of the key areas of deficit. Yeah, it's easy to say reducing by three degrees, uh, but in practice that amounts (laughs) to shivering or, um, you know, we're investing in... uh, Hard water bottle, basically. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A bedpan. Um, yeah. <laughs> precisely. Precisely. All, you know, all to defeat Russia, I guess. Um, yeah, and I, I didn't mean to suggest in all this that the United States is immune from Russia's influence over energy markets either. I, the latest news is that Russia and Saudi Arabia, the leading players in the oil cartel OPEC Plus, have just announced a plan to limit their output of oil you know, the stuff that's the basis for what Americans call gas and the rest of the world tends to call petrol, the stuff that our cars run on, that's going to be to the to the tune of about 2 million barrels a day. Uh, that's a reduction in that amount. Yeah, in general, U.S. politicians love to tout that the U.S. is the world's biggest producer of oil and gas, but does this show that it's kind of impossible to really be energy independent in the way that suggests? And yeah, are, are energy markets set up in a way that the U.S. and Europe 
will never really control their energy sources? Will they always be vulnerable to foreign political pressure of this kind? Yeah, this is a really interesting question because this idea of energy independence is so seductive and I think particularly appeals. I mean, I think of the Europeans, it's, you know, a fantasy on the far distance horizon in case they manage to do the renewable energy transition. But for the US, you know, it's really a kind of abiding fantasy. And, and it really depends on a complex array of factors, whether you are de facto independent or not, on political choices, on corporate strategies and physical infrastructure. And there's a really interesting contrast here between gas and oil, um, because in gas, the United States is de facto independent. Um, why? Because it has a huge volume of fracked gas that's being produced. And because only a small portion of it can be exported, right? There just isn't the liquefaction capacity in the Gulf of Mexico for the quantities of gas that are produced in the US to be exported abroad, which means that the glut of gas in the United States really does make America independent in gas and, in fact, drives gas prices, as you said at the beginning, in the United States, the levels that the Europeans can and own, can only envy. I mean, in due course, of course, this creates an incentive for American businesses to start investing in liquefaction capacity so as to take advantage of the you know prices in Europe and Asia, which are seven or eight times higher. At one point, you could earn so much from one shipment of LNG that you could repay the exorbitant price of the very sophisticated cargo ship it goes in from just one trip. Hmm. So that provides a very powerful incentive to businesses to actually build the liquefaction capacity. The consequence of that would be to end America's independence in gas. America's domestic gas prices would go up and those in the world would come down to the benefit of gas producers. And of course, that would unleash, as you would, as we already see in, in Embryo, an intense American debate about, about whether you should do this, right? whether you should sacrifice independence. When it comes to oil, this is why the contrast is so interesting. Throughout the 1950s and 60s, the situation I've just described for gas actually applied to oil for the United States. So in that period after World War II, America's relatively inefficient local oil industry was shielded against the massively more cost-efficient competition from the Middle East through tariffs. And so per barrel, Americans paid more for oil than Europeans and Japanese, and then the European and Japanese governments added huge amounts of tax on top. Um, and at that point, in a sense, America was independent in oil and supplied itself with slightly overpriced American oil. All of that was stripped away in the 1970s and 1980s in a kind of little hailed, I think, triumph of the market revolution and the neoliberalism, you could say. The American oil industry was bolted onto the global oil industry, and you have a fully integrated market from that moment onwards dominated by the spot price. And from, from that moment onwards, really, no, America is not independent. America is bound into a force field, which is dominated by the two other big suppliers, Saudi and Russia, who, as you said, since you know, 2014, 15, 16, have been organizing this complex OPEC plus cartel with the plus being Russia. And what we're seeing in the current moment is the Biden administration's desperate efforts to corral the Saudis into not engaging in this reduction in production, which the Saudis are now aiming for. Um, so as to continue to supply American consumers of petrol and oil, you know, through the midterms, at least this is a democratic administration, quite transparently, I think, engaged in global electioneering by way of muscling the muscling the, the OPEC cartel. The interesting thing is the Saudis aren't listening. The Saudis have just gone ahead and announced this cut. Once upon a time, and this brings us back to business, right, it wouldn't have been the Biden administration that was twisting arms. The Saudis would have listened, in a sense, perhaps, 
because if they did drive prices up, the consequence would have been that fracking in the United States would come in under their price and swamp the global market with American oil, which is what happened in the period up to 2014. But the situation now is complicated by the fact that Wall Street and big business and financial interests have finally clamped down on the ruinously unprofitable American fracking industry, and in fact, insisting that it generates profit, which means that there isn't this infinitely elastic supply of extra American oil. So this issue of independence is a matter of whether you've got physical infrastructure. It's a matter of national strategies and politics. And it's also a matter of how the business players maneuver in between. And particularly in the American case, they play a really pivotal role. Okay, we're going to take a quick break right here, but we will be right back to continue talking about the energy crisis in Europe. Hi, this show is sponsored by Better Help. So there's something I've been meaning to get off my chest, and it has to do with uh, Little League. My son is on a uh, Little League baseball team here in Berlin, and the coach is... He's great. He's extremely devoted to the games, the practices. He also expects a lot of devotion from the parents, and I often end up feeling like I'm dropping the ball, uh, you know, not literally, but, you know, figuratively in terms of getting my son to practice on time, making sure he's prepared for practices, etc. And uh, I've been called out a few times. No, I've been more than a few times. Uh, pretty regularly, I am called out by this coach in, 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 in the form of text messages uh, admonishing me. And I've been meaning to tell the coach that, you know, life is busy and I can't always uh, hold up my end of the bargain and, 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 and it would be helpful if he would not be so pushy about everything. But I do not say that yet. Instead, I carry it around in my chest and this becomes a stressor. Uh, maybe you all have stressors of your own kind that you're carrying around, big or small. What we all should know is that if we keep these stressors bottled up, it can start to affect us negatively in all sorts of ways. And that is where therapy comes in. Therapy can be a safe space to get things off your chest. You can figure out uh, how to work through whatever it is that's weighing you down. And that's just skimming the surface of what therapy can do. And it isn't just for those who have experienced major trauma. It's for everyone, whether you have a baseball coach in your life you've been meaning to talk to, or another loved one. If you are thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It is entirely online. It is designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. Visit betterhelp.com slash ones twos today to get 10% off your first month. That's betterhelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash ones twos. Get it off your chest with BetterHelp. Okay, we are back, uh, still talking about the energy crisis brought on by Russia's war in Ukraine. It's just one segment for the entire episode today. Unprecedented for us, but uh, it's an unprecedented situation in Europe, obviously. It seems like the European governments have focused their initial policy response to this crisis more on helping out households rather than industries, which are also facing higher energy and heating costs. So I'm wondering, are, are there likely to be waves of industrial bankruptcies this winter and in the winters to come? And 
if that is the case, what sort of industries are most likely to be affected? Um, will it be small businesses, you know, with, I guess, presumably smaller profit margins that will be more likely to go out of business? Will geography play a big role in, in which businesses survive? What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's again important to emphasize it can hardly be said that, you know, the interests of European business were neglected because Europe's governments refused to impose a, you know, a one-sided massive energy uh, or gas import boycott on Russia. They just wouldn't move because mm. they knew mm. they would get huge pushback, notably from the most powerful lobbies in Germany on that issue. Um but now the situation is really very severe. There's no question at all. Um, and all of those factors come into play. Um, the size of businesses, their location, the scale of national government budgets is going to be more and more decisive because we are now talking about huge subsidy programs. So take a particularly extreme case, Slovakia, like a former component part of Czechoslovakia, obviously formerly part of Comic-Con and the Warsaw Pact hugely tied into the Russian gas supply network by way of you know legacy assets from the Cold War period. I mean, it's looking at an energy price support program that its government says will amount to 20% of GDP. I mean, that's most of the federal government budget in relation to the United States. Now, Slovakia is a small country, 5.5 million people, but it's very much in the front line. And its leading heavy industrial companies already shut down production. Again, because of legacy assets from the Soviet period, the Slovakian economy is quite heavy industrial. Um, and its leading heavy industrial producers have all already stopped production. But again, business interests are crucial here and they play in lots of different ways. So Slovakia has potent producers of energy like nuclear and hydroelectric, but they they it sold all of their excess electricity production to the European market at the beginning of this year. And now the Slovakian government is having to buy that back from its own producers at the new highly inflated prices, about five times more, uh, five times higher prices than the ones quoted at the beginning of the year. So a country like that is playing this very complicated game between its appeals to the EU for help with this huge burden, the genuine shutdown of its heavy industrial capacity, and the power play of its own energy producers. And you can replicate this on even larger scales across all of Europe. So Germany and the UK have now, both of them, passed energy price support budgets, which run to the tune of 5 to 6% of GDP. So that's like two times the Pentagon budget in the United States. These are huge programs which have been decided in very, in very short order. And this is going to play out business to business, consumers versus businesses, regions versus each other, and it's going to play out of government against government. So recently, the German government announced a giant 200 billion euro program to subsidize energy consumption in Germany. And this has produced a storm of outrage in the rest of Europe, A, because if Germany subsidizes energy consumption, that will drive up demand for and, and therefore prices for everyone else in Germany is the biggest consumer in Europe. And B, Germany didn't even think apparently to coordinate this with anyone else in Europe. It announced the package a day before a European meeting without giving anyone any advance warning. And it's quite clear that if the European states get into a competitive bidding war for energy subsidies, Germany with a relatively strong balance sheet is going to come out top. Whereas a Slovakia, for instance, at some point is simply going to lose its heavy industrial capacity because it can't afford the subsidy. So if Europe is serious about avoiding fragmentation, which was one of the key arguments um, in 2020 over COVID, then at some point there has to be a serious conversation about fiscally balancing these claims. It's mind-boggling to me, I have to say. It's mind-boggling to me that this is not apparent to Berlin four to six weeks ago. 
So how does Europe's energy crisis response uh, until now line up with its climate goals? Uh, I mean, we are seeing a bunch of new investments here in Germany in carbon infrastructure, you know, those liquid nat natural gas terminals, uh, new sources of gas are being invested in in Africa, uh, extended lifespans for, for coal plants that are now all of a sudden profitable. Even the price controls that have been passed here in Germany are, are subsidizing energy use, including energy from those dirty sources. So could Europe have been more concerted in using this crisis as an opportunity to advance its climate policies? Could it have poured some of the hundreds of billions that are, are going into price controls into renewable investments, for example? Yeah, I don't think we should we shouldn't gild the lily here. I mean, it, there's no doubt this is a disaster. This is was not the program for 2022, right? The Europe was embarked since 2020 on an accelerated energy transition, and this forces Europe backwards into rebuilding, in investing in uh, fossil fuel infrastructure. Um, you know, the spending on the LNG terminals is going to run to about 10 billion euros. And then on top of that, of course, the gas is going to be imported. So you are building uh, infrastructure there, which on any optimistic assessment of the energy transition will be not needed 10 years from now. In the meantime, you're providing direct subsidies to consumers to continue their consumption of fossil fuels. Um, not just for gas either. I mean, the, um, the French support program includes 7 billion euros for drivers for petrol and diesel. Um, so this is a direct response to the, no, presumably to the geo-zone threat, um, which haunts Europe. I mean, all told, the estimate is that Europe's going to sink about 50 billion euros of various, on, into various types of subsidy for continued um, fossil fuel consumption. I think we have to recognise this as, frankly, a rather tragic situation, that there really just aren't obvious alternatives. I mean, given the, it's not just an economic crisis, it's a flat out social crisis that Europe is facing. We haven't mentioned the word fuel poverty or energy poverty, but that's what's going on here. I mean, lower income European households without these subsidies and without these interventions would be facing really by European standards, at least, really manifest and serious deprivation over the course of this of this winter. And having an aged parent in a very, very badly insulated apartment in Glasgow, in, in Edinburgh, I'm extremely sensitive on this issue um, because, you know, as somebody in that kind of rather fragile situation is prone to getting pneumonia and, and pneumonia is a killer for, for elderly people. So issues really of, we've spoken about this before on the program of, you know, of heat death, or in this case, uh, death from cold are real. We should expect an excess, a spike in excess mortality. So governments had to respond. They had to respond somehow. But we should be clear about the fact that this is really from the point of view of climate politics, uh, in the short run, at least, a serious, serious setback. In the long run, in the medium term, I think it will energize the transition. But we actually have to see action on that front. And this is not the moment to expect it on large scale because the fiscal demands are huge. So that compounds the problem as well. Once this is translated into budgets, this is a huge balancing act that the European governments have to perform. Yeah, for me, that tragedy is encapsulated by Germany's minister for the economy, uh, who is the former leader of the Green Party, Robert Habeck, who came in with all of these ambitions to speed up the transition to renewables and is now, yeah, 
basically obliged to fight this crisis by looking for new sources of fossil fuel energy, traveling to the Persian Gulf to look for deals for new gas, etc. Yeah, it's a far cry, a far cry from where he started just a year ago. There's still hope. So, I think the question really is the medium term. And whether or not a program of economies can really get Europe back on track. Because if you look at it structurally, unlike in the United States, the the incentives now could hardly be more, you know, serious. I mean, even if by means of these energy subsidies, huge harm to consumers is averted, nevertheless, governments now have a massive incentive to try and reduce their energy import bills because it's immediately rebounding on government budgets. So when you put the whole thing together, I would expect the energy transition to lurch forward in years to come. But in the short run, this is a very, very serious, you know, bump in the road. Yeah, that brings me to my final question, which is whether this is the widest gap you can recall between the economic experiences of people living in Europe and the United States. I mean, we're talking here about years of energy crisis in Europe with all the strained public finances, the struggling households, the bankrupt businesses that we've been talking about. And it seems like there's really nothing of that kind uh, being discussed in the United States. Obviously, there are economic problems, there's inflation, but, but not really this feeling of crisis. And yeah, if we're facing potentially a decade of this kind of material gap, is there the chance of just a growing political drift between the continents too? I completely agree with you, having traveled back and forth a fair amount um, transatlantically in the last couple of months. You know, if you sit and watch the late night talk shows, these super sophisticated, very civilized talk shows the Germans have, they're entirely dominated by this issue. Like it's Mm. every single night, like rolling barrage of argument and the sense of panic. I mean, as I said about I'm speaking to my my elderly mum up in Scotland, like, you know, there's a real sense of fear about whether or not she's going to be able to find a you know, for the fuel bills. And of course, I say she shouldn't worry, but we're in an incredibly privileged position. Like the people at the bottom end of the income distribution in Europe are really in stress. I mean, very serious stress over this. And speaking about Eastern Europe and, you know, with much lower per capita incomes, this is an even even more serious uh, risk there. I, I, so I completely agree. I mean, I was sort of rolling this around in my mind, trying to think of any parallels. I think you could point to the Eurozone crisis, um, 2010 through 2015, where you also saw fairly serious divergence. But I think that there's a slight difference here in the sense the Eurozone crisis was almost like an extension of a common crisis. You know, that was the theme of my book, Crash, that you know, mm. there was a transatlantic banking crisis, which because of the failures of European crisis management, mutated into a sovereign debt crisis that went on in Europe, but originated in, in a common problem. And I think here, the, what makes this issue so divisive, and I agree with you, that I think that it is quite fundamentally divisive, is that this is this puts this crisis puts Europe and the United States in structurally different positions. I mean, A, because the Europeans are so much closer to the war and the Americans are so deeply involved on the military side, and we've spoken about this before, but this creates a tension between the European and the American position with regard to the entire war. But then B, and more relevantly in this context, the fact that it just exposes the huge difference between America as not just self-sufficient, but as an energy exporter and Europe as a major energy importer. And I think what this does is to amplify the sense that one already had really over the last couple of years that as the energy transition and as climate politics begins to bite, the paths of Europe and the United States really begin quite fundamentally to diverge. 
I mean, I've even at points toyed with the idea that we're going to need a kind of Euro-American detente to get over these fundamental and structural differences. Because at some point, I think we have to stop pretending that we're on the same path, Europe and the United States, and, and recognize that these are fundamental and entrenched differences. The swing variable here is not so much Europe, but China. And the swing variable here is, and we should come back to this in a future show because the Chinese economic story is getting more dramatic really by the day. The swing variable here is is the question of China's economic development from here on in. And if the Chinese economy rebounds, which some indicators suggest it might, notably a loosening, for instance, of COVID policy, then that will massively exacerbate the problem in the global energy market. If, on the other hand, China relapses into a much slower rate of growth, weighed down by the um, problem in the real estate sector there and potentially by further COVID lockdowns, then that substantially eases the pressure. Well, we do need to leave it there for now. I do hope, sincerely hope you enjoy the uh, winter in the United States and its abundant energy resources. We'll be making do the best we can here uh, in Germany. Ones and Twos is written and edited by me, Cameron Abadi, along with Adam Twos. It is produced by Laura Rossbrow Tellum and Rob Sachs. Our social media manager is Claudia Tady. The executive editor of FP Podcasts is Dan Efron. This show is made possible through the support of foreign policy readers. If you're interested not just in Adam Twos, but news and analysis from around the world, consider subscribing. Ones and twos listeners even get a 15% discount. Just go to foreignpolicy.com slash subscribe and use the promo code twos at checkout. That is T-O-O-Z-E. And listeners, as always, we love hearing your feedback. You can send us voice messages on the ones and twos homepage on foreignpolicy.com or you can email us podcasts at foreignpolicy.com or tweet us. That's at ones and twos podcast. Thanks very much for listening, and we will see you back in your feed next week. Hi, I'm Annalise Riles, professor of law at Northwestern University. I'm also an anthropologist and the host of a new podcast, Everyday Ambassador, where we give you the small tools that make big change. The idea for this show has been a long time in the making. I actually remember the exact day I started thinking about it. It was March 11, 2011. I was in Japan conducting research on the financial markets of Tokyo. All of a sudden, I heard a loud rumbling sound and the room started shaking. Everything came crashing off the shelves. I looked out the window and I could see the skyscrapers swaying so much that they looked like they would touch. And then the sirens started going off. A tsunami was on the way. These were the harbingers of one of Japan's worst ever disasters, the meltdown of the Fukushima nuclear power plant. The Japanese government now says two reactors are in partial meltdown and four more are at risk. The meltdown completely turned Japan on its head. I saw hundreds of stunned office workers covered in dust walking down empty train tracks to get from the city to their homes in the suburbs. Electricity was out, internet, cell phones. Supplies flew off the shelves of stores. Geiger counters became an in-demand item, which is never a good thing. 
living through a crisis of this magnitude was an inflection point for me. To prevent the next Fukushima or any of the other crises we face today, we'll have to work much more effectively across silos of expertise and national boundaries. And we'll need to harness the wisdom of everyone, from local fishers to nuclear physicists, on how the world really works and what happens when things go awry. Using this approach, I've gone on to spur countless innovations in global policy. And that's what this podcast is all about. Everyday Ambassador peels back the curtains of high-stakes leadership and gives everyone backstage access to the most powerful methods of diplomacy. In each episode, we'll break things down into deceptively simple moves that everyone can make to help build a more peaceful and sustainable world. Like giving a gift. You want to make it tasteful. You want to make it thoughtful. You thought about the other individual. You thought about what their likes and dislikes are. Or creating a fiction. Taking on a fictional scenario and a role outside of the one that you occupy in your day-to-day life allows you to think through what you would like to have done differently. Or just taking the time to have fun. Trying to see this as more so building long-term relationships that are going to be helpful uh, down the line when negotiations are a bit harder, as all negotiations are. Each week, you'll hear surprising stories which reveal the moves you can make to change the status quo, to find ways to connect and move things forward. So join me and become an everyday ambassador coming to you this spring on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen. 